Well, good job. We're going to dedicate our learning this morning and our uh, Parsha class uh, for the foreseeable future for Rafu Shlema for all Chola Yisrael. should be a speedy recovery uh, for all those who are ill, in particular our beloved uh, Rav Gavriel Pinchas ben Dvorizlata, Rabbi Moskowitz, who is in need of our Tfilos. He should have a complete and speedy Rafu Shlema. And uh, together with all those who are ill. Okay, this uh, morning we have the privilege of studying Parshas Vayechi, and with it conclude this incredible opening Sefer of the Torah. Throughout this opening book of Bereshis, we have been following the development of the Jewish people as a family. If Shemos represents our emergence as a nation, then Bereshis represents our formation as a family, with all the struggles and all of the dysfunction and all of the challenges that families have, it's all present in Sefer Bereshis. We've seen it all in marriage and parenting and friendship and we've seen all of the uh, growing pains that go with the formation of this family and it culminates in our parsha. while the story seems to have come to a head last week in Vayigash when Yehuda confronts Yosef and Yosef reveals himself and they hug and they cry and they bring Yaakov down to Mitzrayim and they settle in Goshen and we're tempted to want to read they lived happily ever after. It's not entirely so clear. Which brings us to Parshas Vayechi. Vayechi Yaakov Beretz Mitzrayim, page 268 in the article Stone Chumash. Yaakov lives in Egypt for 17 years and it's coming to the end of Yaakov's life. He's lived 147 years. He realizes he's going to die. He realizes the end is near and so he summons Yosef. He summons Yosef and first he makes Yosef make a promise to him. He says, do a great chesed. Whatever you do, don't bury me in Egypt. We developed this idea on Shabbos HaGobel a few years ago. Our avos were desperate. First Yaakov, later Yosef, made their offspring promise to swear, do not bury me in Egypt. And why? Because we mentioned last week what Egypt represents. Egypt is the antithesis of Israel. Egypt is sustained by the Nile, right? That was Yaakov's bracha to Paro in their 60-second conversation last week. Right? Yaakov's bracha, his parting bracha is, may the Nile always rise. Egypt is sustained by natural irrigation. doesn't need God. It's independent. It's on its own. They set up their own life. And therefore, they sink ultimately into the 49 levels of Tumah. Israel is a place that relies on rain. And when you rely on rain, then you're constantly evaluating your spiritual worthiness. You're constantly investing in your relationship with the Almighty from whom you have received that rain. And that's the, the Torah's injunction, the Torah's prohibition to move back to Egypt once we've left. is not just geographically to move back, but it's to go back to that mentality. To go back to that place of wanting to be independent. Wanting to be without God, wanting to be on your own. And that's part of our avos, our great holy ancestors did not want their legacy intertwined with the ideology of Egypt. They desperately wanted to be removed from Egypt and buried with their forefathers in Israel. Again, not just geographically and not so that tour buses would pull up non-stop to come visit them. They wanted to be buried there because they wanted their legacy intertwined with the ideology of what Eretz Yisrael represents. So Yaakov makes Yosef promise. Yosef later makes others promise and that promise is kept. Right? Pesach Sheni, according to one opinion, the whole introduction of Pesach Sheni, needing a second Pesach, why were they impure? Because they were carrying whose bones on their shoulders as they left Egypt? Yosef's. 
So the promise to Yosef is fulfilled, just like the promise here to Yaakov is ultimately fulfilled. Yaakov understands that his illness is progressing, and he has an incredible bracha. And he mentioned this actually yesterday at a funeral, our beloved Bob Silver, that uh, he had a similar bracha. He just passed away. To know that your end is coming and to have the presence of mind to be surrounded by family, to give them blessings and to feel their love, to embrace those last moments in order to communicate what you want um, with a certain sense of, uh, of uh, consciousness and uh, mindfulness and awareness is a great bracha. And Yaakov understands what's happening and he takes advantage of this bracha to bestow brachas upon. That's the bulk of our parsha. He first gives brachas, which we'll get to in a moment, to his grandchildren. We're going to see in a moment, Yaakov is the first grandfather. Really uh, incredible insight by the Rav. We'll talk about it in a moment. But Yaakov begins by giving blessings to his grandchildren and then he continues to give brachas to all of his children one by one. Page 274. Hey, First he says, he gathers them and says, I'm going to tell you what will happen at the end of time. What will happen in the messianic eschatological era and that he's prevented from exactly revealing what happens at the end of time. But he begins to give these brachas. And if you look at the text, you'll see something peculiar. Very peculiar. When we think of a parent giving a child a bracha, when we think of anybody giving anyone else a bracha, we think of their telling them, you should have gezunt and parnasa and nachas and shalom bias. Generic, feel-good, positive, nice things. Yaakov gives his children brachas, and what does he do? He smacks him around a little bit. He gives a little patch here and a little patch there. Reuven b'choriata. Kochi v'roshes oni. Reuven, you're my firstborn. You're my strength, my vigor. You're foremost. Yeser se'es, the yeser az. But you know what? Pachas kamayim altosar ki alisa mishkeve avicha. You are impetuous, my boy. You have a problem. You have a deficiency. You have a character flaw. You're impetuous. When you, Alisa Mishkave Avicha, you mounted your father's bed, the story of, of Reuven with the bed, Shimon Valevi Achim, he turns to his next two sons and he says to them, Hamas Weaponry is a stolen craft. In their conspiracy, may my soul not enter. Now, I want no part of your behavior, Shimon Valevi. I don't join your effort. In your rage, you murdered people. At your whim, they hamstrung an ox. Accursed are you for your rage. Orapam. Yaakov turns to his son and says, Cursed is your anger. Ki ki kashasa, and so on. He goes one by one and he tells his children, Here are your deficiencies. Here are your character flaws. These are brachas. This is what a father does on his deathbed. I would say, uh, Abba, Dad, Tati. Tell me I should have gezunt and parnasa and shalom bayis and nachas and alagutazachin. You're giving me a musr and rebuke and have to remind me of the past. That's a bracha. So the commentaries point out indeed that yeah, the greatest bracha a parent can give is not to tell their child you're amazing and perfect and excellent and handsome and gorgeous and the smartest and the best and... That's not the greatest bracha. The greatest bracha is to say, you're wonderful. And here are your wonderful qualities. And you give us incredible pride through your wonderful qualities. But you need to know that this needs to be worked on. And who else is going to be honest with you other than an unconditionally loving parent? Who else is going to be honest and transparent with you? Other than, that's love. 
to be transparent and say this is what needs work. And Yaakov expresses that. That's what's happening in these brachas. I mentioned last night at a women's shear. I think that's also a model for us. Where do we learn? Just to digress before we get back in detail into the Parsha. But we learn from the opening of the Parsha. When Yaakov summons his grandchildren, he turns to them and he says, Yisrael. Through you the Jewish people will be blessed. And indeed that prophecy is fulfilled when every Friday night we give a bracha. If we are blessed to have children, grandchildren, we give the sweetest bracha there is. This might be the sweetest thing in all of Judaism. In all of Judaism. Giving a bracha to your children on Friday night. Give a bracha when they're here or give a bracha in abstention. My parents happen to be here now, but their children... My siblings and I know that wherever they are in the world, wherever we are in the world, on Friday night we get a bracha. A bracha is not only when they're sitting there. A bracha is you close your eyes for a moment before Kiddush and you give a bracha to each of your children. What's a bracha? It means you had them in mind. It means you paused and interrupted your life to say, I want to think about the well-being, the pride I take in, the, the good fortune I hope for, for my children. Yisrael. This is the promise of Why Ephraim and Menashe? We spoke about it in the past. It's kind of peculiar. If I, we're all biased. But if I objectively had turned to you and said, who do you think we should wish our boys be like? Ephraim and Menashe probably wouldn't have been within the top 50 of names that you would have come up with. They're somewhat anonymous figures, Ephraim and Menashe. They have a little uh, scene in this week's Parsha, but other than that, they're pretty invisible personalities. And yet Ephraim and Menashe are chosen as the paradigms of who we wish for our children. Why that is, we talked about it before. But Yisrael, we bless um, our children on Friday night. It's brought down by Rav Yaakov Emder in his uh, Sefer, in his Siddur, Beis Yaakov, that when one comes home from shul, either when leaving shul or when you first come home from shul, to bless children. I mentioned this at Milchamarav the other night. Why do we bless our children Friday night? Some of the men to bless their children at a bris. They say this formulation, Yisim Chalukim, and the Birchas, the Bracha Meshulashas, Birchas Kawanim, they say it at a bris. Others fulfill Bechayi Varich Yisrael under a chuppah. They'll call up Kawanim, and the Kawanim give the Birchas Kawanim. But we universally have the Minag to do it Friday night. Why do we do it Friday night? One of the sweetest moments in the whole week. It's incredible. It's incredible. The Maral had a brother. The Maral brother wrote a sefer called Sefer Achaim. And in Sefer Achaim, he gave a fantastic answer. He gave a number of answers, but one particular answer I think stands out as fantastic. What happens in many Jewish homes on Friday afternoon? It, it doesn't happen in my home, but I've heard that it happens in other homes. <laughs> there can be chaos and pandemonium, raised voices, loud decibel levels. Why didn't you take a bath? You were supposed to set the table. How come your brief, your book bag, your backpack is still in the middle of the floor? You were going to help with it. Why didn't you do that? What's going on? There's a lot of strife and tension and consternation on Erev Shabbos. There's a negative energy that's introduced to the atmosphere of the home in anticipation of Shabbos. What's the antidote? What do we do to correct and repair? You sing Honey, I'm sorry. Didn't mean to yell. I shouldn't have raised my voice. This incredible meal, what you've done the whole week for our family, what you did for the Shabbos for our family. And says the Ma'ar brother, that's the Birch HaSabonim. You come to the table after perhaps you expressed some disappointment in your children on Erev Shabbos and you give them a bracha. 
you repair, you correct, you introduce the most positive energy into the home through the antidote of the Birch HaSabbanim. So what is the Birch HaSabbanim? Why am I sharing this with you? Because I think that's the message. Just like Yaakov calls each of his children, and he doesn't discharge some generic uh, He calls each one over and he says, this is why I love you, this is what you need to work on. It's personal, it's personal. I try to call each of my children over, and when I give them that bracha, I whisper something in their ear that I'm so proud of that week. Or I say aloud and I share, depending on who the, the company is. Make each child feel that they're special, they're distinct child, grandchild, that they're not some generic recipient of the formula that has to get out of the way before you can finally make Kiddush, but rather that it's a precious, precious moment to make them feel they give their parent pride and uh, perhaps something that we are agreed on, uh, committed to work on. How do you give this bracha? We've been talking about it in Minchamarav, so I'm not going to say it now, but it's a big question. If you're a non-Kohen, how are you giving Birchas Kohenim? I'm a Yisrael. I can blame my father for that. I'm a Yisrael. So how do you, how do you give Birchas Kohenim? You're not a Kohen. Does a Yisrael, a Zar, have license to recite Birchas Kohenim? How could they say it? So the Torah Tamima in Bamidbar, not here in Barashas, but the Torah Tamima says, that's why you should only put one hand on the child's head, not two. The Kohen uses two hands. And the Kohen therefore bestows a bracha through the conduit of two hands. But if you're not a Kohen, you have no right, you have no license, that's why you put only one hand on the head of the child. Rabbi Vadya Yosef has a tshuva in Yechavadas, and Rabbi Yaakov Emden disagrees in his Siddur Beis Yaakov. He says, what are you talking about? You're not trying to function as a Kohen. You're not allowed to imitate a Kohen during Birchas Kohen, and Duchening, on Shabbos, on Yantif, if you're uh, uh, Ashkenazi every day, if you're Sephardi. That's when you can't imitate a Kohen. But to give your children a bracha, put two hands on the head and hold on tight and give them the greatest bracha that you can. It's not a problem whatsoever. So all of this comes from, from our wonderful Parsha. So Yaakov gives brachas to all of his children one by one. And then he has his final request. He turns to them collectively now and he says, Ani alami, I'm going to die. Bury me with my forefathers. Why is he repeating this request? He already issued this request to Yosef directly. He made Yosef promise. Why is he repeating this request? So we've studied this in the past. The Mepharshim explained, Yaakov was not confident that Yosef would be able to fulfill the request. Why not? Because Yosef couldn't leave Egypt. Because power was fearful. One second, one second. All this blessing, the economy, the functioning of the economy, the economic cycles. You're the chairman of the Fed. Where are you going? You've been able to keep interest rates low. You can't go to Israel. What if you don't come back? What if you try to build an empire and you try to supersede me, you try to replace me? He was fearful. Yosef was not going to be enabled by Paro, which ultimately he was. He made Paro a promise and he took his advisors with him. They wanted to be collateral that he was going to return. But Yaakov wanted to invoke the promise of the other brothers as well in order to ensure that he would return. Yaakov is mourned by all of Egypt. You see in the short time, the 17 years he was in Egypt, living in Goshen, really a suburb, not in the city, the metropolis itself. Yaakov nevertheless earns a great reputation. He's mourned by all of Egypt. Yosef goes for that permission. He receives the permission. The burial procession goes. And how does Sefer Bracious end? This is one of the most heartbreaking things to me. We developed this at length last year. You could listen online. I'll just tell it to you in 60 seconds and then we'll get on to our psukim for this week. But how does Sefer Bracious end? We want the curtain to fall on an incredible story of reconciliation 
and love and unity and brotherhood. We want the curtain to fall and the, and the music to take us out on the scene of a family that was dysfunctional, but they figured it all out before they go on to build a nation. But is that in fact what happens? Is that in fact what happens? There's a hint at the end of this parsha. Because what happens on the way back from the funeral? Remember they passed the exact pit where the brothers had thrown Yosef. We saw this last year, the Meforshim talk about. The brothers see that pit and go, uh oh. And they try to divert and hope to distract and let's not talk about it. Yosef feels the need to stop and make a bracha. Mishnah says in brachos, when we stop in a place where a miracle occurred for you, you have to make a blessing. You have to acknowledge the miracle that occurred for you. And the brothers turn to Yosef and they say, Oh, by the way, Joe, Dad told us a message for you before he died. And the message was, make sure to not get even with us. Make sure to forgive us. That everything should be okay. Now, Rabbeinu Bachia, the great 13th century Spanish commentator, Rabbeinu Bachia has an unbelievable comment. Do you know why that was acutely, unbearably painful for Yosef to hear? Because did Yosef ever tell his father what had happened to him? You have to imagine they have 17 years together, reunited. Yosef, the apple of his father's eye. Did Yaakov ever turn to Yosef and say, Yosef, my beloved little Yosef, where were you all those years? What happened? Why didn't you reach out for me? Oh, I missed you so. I grieved for you. I longed for you. Where were you? What happened? I sent you to check on your brothers that day. You never came home. What happened? Did Yosef ever tell Yaakov? Did Yaakov ever find out what happened among his children? The text doesn't tell us. The text doesn't tell us. And there's a debate among the commentaries. And the majority say no. And who is that a tribute to? Yosef. Yosef showed the most incredible loyalty and devotion to his brothers by suppressing what must have been a daily, a hourly urge to tell his father, you know where I was? You know what happened? I'll tell you what happened. But he didn't. He protected his brothers all those years, says Rabbeinu Bachya. And how do they reciprocate? By being suspicious of him. That when Yaakov dies, they turn to him and say, by the way, Dad said we should remind you after the funeral that you shouldn't do anything to us. Yosef says, Dad told you that? That's impossible. Because Dad never knew. And how did Dad never know? Because I never told him. So here we are. It's not the reconciliation and the hope and the beautiful story ending the way we want. So says Rabbeinu Bachya, Yosef never fully forgave his brothers. And why didn't he fully forgive his brothers? Because they never fully reconciled with him. They went through the superficial motions, but they never really worked it out. Rabbi Nebachia comes to this conclusion, again, I don't want to spend our time, we discussed this at length last year, he comes to this conclusion because he says, we know we have the tradition, on Yom Kippur and Tisha B'Av, we mourn the Asara Haruge Malchus, the martyrs, the ten martyrs who gave their lives at the hands of the Romans. We discussed this in people of the book, in the last couple of months, we talked about it. Mayor Beria, Beria saw her father murdered by the Romans, her mother murdered by the Romans. Rabbi Mayer saw his Rebbe, Rabbi Akiva, murdered brutally by the, by the Romans. These were the Asara Haruge Malchus. Why did they die? The Medrash and Eicha tells us. Because 
the Romans read the Bible and said, you know what, no one was ever accountable for selling Yosef. The brothers were never accountable. And put the Jewish people on trial and determined that ten rabbis needed to die to atone for what the brothers did. Says Rabbi Nebachia, one second, that story's over, that story was buried. They worked it out. They didn't, what do you mean they didn't atone? They, Yosef forgave them. Elamai, says Rabbeinu Yedbaachia, rather, what must it be? He never forgave his brothers. He never forgave his brothers. And the brothers continue to harbor this suspicion and perhaps some animosity to him despite the magnanimity he had shown. Could he have been kinder? Could he have been more loyal? Yosef ends Sefer Bracious with unbelievable loneliness despite every effort to reconcile with his brothers. At least according to the version of Rabbeinu Bachya, very, very sad story to the end of, of Sefer Bracious. Okay, let's go to what I want to study in depth today. Perak Memches, Pasagalov. Chapter 48, verse 1. It's page 268 in the Heliga Art Scroll Chumash. 268. We're going back to the beginning of the parsha, towards the beginning of the parsha. It's after these things. What are these things that Yaakov had made Yosef promise not to bury him in Egypt? And it is told to Yosef, your father is taken ill. He takes his two boys with him, Menashe and Ephraim. What should bother you about the pasuk? Remember. When we started this class many years ago, the purpose was to a textual analysis, to look at the verses textually and say, what is bothering? All this mikroskedos, all these commentaries, something stimulated their commentary. They were bothered by something. What's strange in this pasuk? Why is that strange? Bless you. It's utterly superfluous. He took his two sons with him, Menashe. Either just say he took Menashe and Ephraim, or say he took his two sons. Why do we have to say he took his two sons, Menashe and Ephraim? By now we know who his two sons are. This is what bothers the Orachayim Akadosh. Tam Says the Orachayim, what do you have to be redundant? Oh, Lomar Menashe Ephraim, Vani Yodea came, Banov Harashim, and Paparshas Mikates. Why does it say he took his two sons, Emo, with him? We know he took them with him. It should just say, Period. End of sentence. Again, we should approach the text with the sensitivity of Aram Rafarshim, who saw, tried to identify an extraneous letter, an extraneous word, the synta, the grammar, the what's going on. So the Rechaim says, What do you have to mention their names? And why do you have to have this extra word of emo? Gam omro es beis pa'amim. The verse says, Vaikach es shnevanov, es menashev es Ephraim. Why the two times es? Three questions the Yorachim is bothered by that none of you bothered to be bothered by. Fine. <laughs> I don't know why I put up with you. So says the Yorachim. Ulaiki odeh hakosov tam Yosef beliki chosam shahis lakachas kol echad birchosov bifnei atzmo. So suggest the Yerachayim to answer the questions. Perhaps these two boys earned merited brachas for two reasons. Number one, as the children of 
their father Yosef, and number two, independently. Meaning, because their father was Yosef, as the grandchildren of Yaakov, they deserved brachos, and then independent, they had each forged their own identity as righteous people, that on their own right they deserved a bracha. And that's what he says. Don't just think Menashe and Ephraim are Nebuchs who are riding the coattails of their father Yosef. They deserve brachas as the children of Yosef, and they also deserve brachas because they had established themselves as significant individuals as well. This is the answer of the Archaim. I am less concerned with his answer, more concerned with trying to highlight to you his attention to detail and his question. Vayomer li Yosef. It was told to Yosef that his father was ill. Who told him? Who told him? The hospice nurse? The doctor? Insurance company called? Who told him? Says Rashi. Echad mina magidim. Echad mina magidim. Varez a mikra kotzer. One of the people who tell. It's kind of uh, ambiguous. Vyeshomer, but there's another opinion. You know who summoned Yosef? His son Ephraim. Ephraim, I arugil of Neyakov, but Talmud. Ephraim studied with Yaakov every day. Ukeshechal Yaakov, Beretz Goshen, Halach Ephraim, it's a lot of them. It's Ephraim, Lagudla. Remember, where does Yaakov live? in the Jewish suburb of Goshen, the Jewish shtetl of Goshen. Where is Yosef? In the palace. He's situated in the capital in Egypt. So Ephraim is not with his father in the palace. He is a caretaker, a caregiver, a shamish to his grandfather Yaakov. He re- ya- Yosef grew up with extra learning with his father. Ephraim has now taken that learning slot and he's sitting in the lap of his grandfather figuratively or literally learning with him so he's the one who knows about his grandfather's illness and he travels to the capital to the palace in order to go tell his father he goes to get his sons why? Yosef could have gone alone Yosef could have said thanks for telling me let me go visit dad but he grabs his sons Ephraim and Manasseh he wants to make sure to get them uh, to get them a bracha. Pasuk base. Vayeged liYaakov, vayomer. Hine bincha Yosef boilach. It was told to Yaakov. Who told Yaakov? Your child, your son Yosef is coming. Who told him? Again, Rashi is kind of ambiguous. Hamaged liYaakov v'lo perish me. Barbe mikros kitzrei lashon. A lot of times we have ambiguous language in the text. We're not sure, probably because it really doesn't matter who informed Yaakov, but someone informed Yaakov. Your son Yosef is coming. So what does Yaakov do? He's called here Yisrael. I told you already, an excellent exercise is to go through the Torah and identify when is Yaakov called Yaakov, when is Yaakov called Yisrael, and why. Yisrael has a different connotation than Yaakov. Yisrael has a much greater, a broader connotation, a national connotation. Yaakov is the individual. When does the text refer to him as Yaakov? When does it refer to him as Yisrael? It's an interesting exercise. But either way, Yaakov, Yisrael, hears that his son Yosef is coming, and what does he do? Vayis chazek. He strengthens himself. He, he puts himself together. He gets himself together in order to greet. He's so excited. He's getting a visit. The simple understanding of Vayis chazek is, no matter how old, how frail, how infirm Yaakov is, 
a visit from his kinder, a visit from one of his children, is reason to get dressed, to put himself together, and to anticipate his the visit. I remember Yechavid's grandparents, Aleim Shalom, you tell them that you were visiting her Babi and Zaidi in Rigo Park. It was a reason to put on makeup and to get dressed and to put out a little food. And uh, long before you even pulled up in front of their apartment building, they were waiting in the lobby. They were excited. A visit from the children or the grandchildren. Barashi gives another interpretation. And this interpretation, I think, is very, very important. Omar, Yaakov says to himself, Yosef is my kid. Not the opposite. Yosef is my child. But nevertheless, Melechu. He's royalty. So who has to show whom honor? Yes, he's my child. And normally children show parents honor. But this child is a melech. He's royalty. And so the position he holds is worthy of my honoring him. Mikan, we learn from here, says Rashi, Shecholkin kavod lamalchus. The obligation of showing honor to the position of power. Despite sometimes because of the person who holds the position and sometimes despite the person who holds the position. Rashi quotes two further pieces of evidence. When Moshe approaches Paro, Moshe shows deference, shows respect to Paro. Respect to Paro. Paro was the Hitler of their time. He's murdering little boys. He's killing the Jewish people. And Moshe is talking to him with deference? How could that be? So Rashi quotes from the Medrash, Moshe is not talking to Paro the individual. He's talking to the position of power with deference. Eliyahu, similarly. What is the Medrash trying to communicate? You know, we have a bracha. I gave a shir on this a number of years ago. That uh, the notion of being karav lamalchus when you have an audience, when you have access to power, what attitude do you bring? There's a bracha that one recites, we did a whole discussion, whether you make a bracha when you see today the Queen of England, whether you make a bracha when you see the President of the United States, make a bracha if you see the Prime Minister of wherever, what is the, what warrants? The Gemara says a king, someone who has the power of life and death. Why do you make that bracha? You make the bracha, the commentaries in the Gemara explain, because that individual is a greater symbol or a connection to the power of the Almighty if they have life and death in their hands. So the attitude you're bringing to the position and the power is not the individual who holds it, but it's a notion of appreciating authority because if you can maintain respect for human authority, it will only increase and promote the respect you have for the true authority for the Almighty. And the more, the more casual and the more lazy and the more cynical you are, for the respect for human authority, the less you will ultimately display of respect for the true and highest authority, the Almighty. So Jewish philosophy, Jewish halacha, dictates an attitude of deference, an attitude of respect, hopefully because you do admire the person in the position of authority, and at times, despite the person in the position of authority, as in the case of Moshe showing respect to Paro, and Elio showing respect. You know, it's relevant, there was a big debate I'm not criticizing, you all know the honor we showed the police this past Shabbos, one of the proudest moments I had as rabbi of BRS, the two standing ovations that our members showed to the representatives of our sheriff's office this past Shabbos. But the big debate, both at the hospital and the funeral in New York, when the officers turned their back to the mayor. You could dislike the mayor, 
but should you show Shutz disrespect to the position of mayor? It would seem from Rashi, you should find the ability to disagree with the person. Totally understandable, I can be very sympathetic to disagreeing with the particular mayor. But one has to be very cautious and careful not to disregard or dismiss or disrespect the position. The same is true with all, let's just say, levels of authority in this country and others. You could disagree with the people, but we, for our own sake, must maintain our respect. The Sif Sechachamim, the super commentary here on Rashi, points out, Rashi gave the example of Yosef. The Yaakov shows Yosef honor, even though Yosef's his son. Why? Because he's Malchus, Mikan Shachokin covered the Malchus. Why does Rashi have to bring a second example of Moshe and a third example of Eliyahu? So it says the Sif Sechachamim. You learn something new by each further example. If you had only learned from Yaakov, who showed honor to Yosef, even though Yosef was his son, Okay, it was easy for Yaakov to show respect to his son, who was in a position of power, because his son in the position of power was a tzaddik. He was righteous, he was worthy of the respect. How would I know from there that you have to show respect even when the person is unworthy? So that's why we needed the second example that Moshe even showed honor to Paro who was wicked and who represented a non-Jewish position of power. But from here you only learn that you have to show honor and deference in the way you speak Kimo Chiyotzebo, standing up and so on. Lachain Mevi, Vachain Elio, Vaisanes Masnava Yartsufne Achav, Lahoros de Chalukas Kavar Aflasos La Abdus La Triach Bishvilo Kvoto. Masha Asa Eliyahu. What's the third thing that you learn from Eliyahu? Why did Rashi have to bring the third example? Because Eliyahu wasn't just careful in the way he spoke, he actually ran to go carry out honor for Ahav, who was wicked. He actually performed. His behavior exhibited the honor as well. Very important Rashi. By Yitzchazek Yisrael, Yaakov strengthened himself to show honor to Yosef, even though Yosef was his son. A very important, uh, here's an editorial comment, especially in our generation when younger people have to a great degree lost the, what should be the implicit honor for people in positions of authority and I have my own theories why that is, because young people today have access to unlimited information. So they think they're smarter than those who've lived long and have wisdom. So young people have no respect for They think your authority is, so what? We're the same. You're 50 years older, you're 80 years older, you live much longer, you survive the Hakka, you, no, you have no more authority than I do. We're all equal, we're all human beings. There's in this climate and environment of children struggling, let's just say, with respect for authority, we adults should be very careful to preserve the way we speak about people in authority positions, even if we dislike them or their policies, to make sure our children understand the notion of authority. All that all comes from this Rashi. Vaiter, Pasuk Gimel. Pasuk Gimel. Vayomer Yaakov Yosef. Yaakov turns to Yosef and he says, Keo Shaddai Nira Eli Baluz, Beretz Kenan. Yaakov turns to Yosef and he says, God appeared to me in when I was in Canaan and he blessed me. And what was the blessing? He told me, I'm going to, you're going to promulgate and propagate, you're going to multiply, I'm going to forge you into a nation. 
I'm going to give you this land, God told Yaakov in Israel, despite whatever the UN might say. It's going to belong to you in perpetuity. It's going to belong to you forever. Yaakov is introducing, this is the blessing God gave to me, that I'm going to have, I'm going to have uh, children. And now, you to, your two yingles, your two little boys who were born to you here in Mitzrayim, before I ever came down to Egypt, the two boys born to you, they are mine. Your two sons, my grandsons, are like my own children. They have the status of being lihem. They are part of my own children. What does that mean to be part of my own children? What does it mean to count grandchildren among one's own children? It's not just a sentimental statement. It's not just Yaakov, the good Zayda, saying, I love my grandchildren, that my grandchildren are like mine. Says Rashi, It means there has just been a recalculation of the Shvatim. Yaakov has his estate planner in the room, he's redoing the will, and he says, yes, I have my allocation, I'm leaving to children my allocation for grandchildren. Ephraim and Manasseh are being bumped up a notch. Their designation is children, not grandchildren. Yaakov has just redone the will. What is Yaakov's will? The greatest asset he's leaving is Eretz Canaan, Eretz Yisroh. That's the greatest real estate that he's leaving. He doesn't leave Eretz Yisrael to his grandchildren, he leaves it to his children to divide. It's divided among the Shvatim. He introduces that Ephraim and Manasseh just received the status of being Shvatim. That means that instead of Yosef getting one portion among his brothers, instead of Yosef, there's Ephraim and Manasseh getting two portions. And if you look at the maps of the division of Israel, later in Sefer Bamidbar, you see the call for the division of Eretz Yisrael, you see that Levi doesn't get land, but... Menashe and Ephraim get land like everybody else. There's a big machlokas, Rashi Ramban here. Exactly how it works is the land divided. Does each tribe get the exact same acreage of real estate? That's according to one opinion. Or according to the other, no, it's divided by population. According to one opinion, each tribe gets the exact same amount of real estate. Within that, you now divide the cities within the area based on population. According to the other opinion, no, even the division of the land is based on population. It's a big machlok is Rashi Ramban with the nafkamina of do Menashe and Ephraim net more land because of this decision. Now there's Menashe and Ephraim had they been Yosef and Yosef, if it was divided by population, then they'd get the exact amount of land even without giving them up a notch. But if by bumping them up a notch, every tribe now gets the same amount, now that you've given Yosef two portions, essentially, through Menashe and Ephraim, you've given Yosef more land proportionally to the brothers. That's a Machlokas Rashi in the Ramban. You could look inside and see that. So with this statement, Yaakov bumps up Menashe and Ephraim from the status of grandchildren to literally being children. And why does he do it? Yes. Oh. Yeah. Excellent question. Hadn't Yaakov learned from experience that this is not a good idea? Right? Yosef's children will have a special status. But the other brother's children... Didn't he learn from experience that this is not going to turn out well? This is not a good idea. It's an excellent question. Was giving him two portions. 
Oh, so, so go back a Pasuk because I think it explains why Yaakov felt compelled to do this. Yaakov was not doing this on his own volition. Yaakov was doing this because he felt he was fulfilling the prophecy that God gave him, the charge that God gave him. Why did ya- Yaakov introduce this directive to his estate planner? Why does he introduce it by saying, you know, when I was in Canaan, God told me, When I was in Canaan, God said to me that um, you're going to have many children and they're going to be kalamim and you're going to give this land. So if you look at Rashi, you see, when did God tell him that? When did God tell him that? That you're going to have more children. The Shvatim were all born. Rachel was pregnant with Binyamin. So no more tribes, no more children were conceived after God gave this blessing. So Yaakov's living his life looking and saying, God gives a blessing that I'm going to have Mafrachavir Bisicha, I'm going to have another child. Well, that's Binyamin, my wife's pregnant already. In the plural. And then there'll be two more children after that. And Yaakov was living his life wondering, but there weren't two more children. Rachel died, Leah was done, shop was closed, no more children. So what was this promise? God told me that there's going to be more children. There's no more. Done. So what does he say to himself? Ah, oh, Ephraim and Menashe. That's the fulfillment of God's vision. The Mephoshim here will explain it that way. That's why Yaakov introduces this move by saying, God gave me this promise. And that's why I'm elevating Ephraim and Menashe. This is not my choice. I learned from my mistake. I wouldn't do this. But God clearly then was telling me, knowing I wouldn't have more children, that I would have more children. And who are the more children I actually have had? Indirectly, my grandchildren, Menashe and Ephraim. Ephraim and Menashe. But doesn't that make us No, because they replace Yosef. They take the status of of Yosef. Look at the Kliyaka, the Kliyaka is bothered, that if you actually look at the Pasuk earlier, you'll see that Yaakov here changes the language. Lama Shina Yaakov HaLashon. Shom Neamar. Earlier, that which Yaakov is quoting, the conversation with the Almighty. And Yaakov changes it. God said, pray v'rabei, and Yaakov calls it, mafrecha v'hir b'sicha. Again, I don't want to go through the long Kliyakar who gives his answer. I'm trying to draw your attention to the sensitivity of the Kliyakar. Rav Lunchitz is bothered. He bothered to go back and look at the earlier conversation. None of you did. Right? He said, Yaakov here is quoting God. God told me earlier X, Y, and Z. So Kliyakar says, okay, we'll go back and look and see what God told him. And then he says, one second. This is not exactly what God told him. Why doesn't it match up? And he has to give an answer. It's again a sensitivity to the text. I want to read to you an incredible interpretation. This is from the Rav Chumash that came out. I think they only have Bracious, which I'm very sad about. I've been looking at it throughout today for Bracious. So, it goes back on the shelf after uh, this week. But uh, the Rav, Rabbi Salavechik, said the following. I'm going to read it to you in his own words. Because I think it's fantastic. Yaakov is frequently called Zakim, the Old One, in the Torah and the Medrash. Despite the fact that Avram and Yitzchak live longer lives. They both live, Avram and Yitzchak live longer, but Yaakov always has that appellation, Yaakov always has that nickname, the Zakeh, the old man. When Yaakov refused to let Benjamin return to Egypt, Yehuda turns to him and says, leave the Zakeh alone. When later Yosef asks, is your old father, Avichem HaZakeh, is he still alive? 
in his explanation for the source of the prayer which follows the opening of Shema Yisrael, Rambam writes, the old one exclaimed it, Pasach HaZakein V'Omar, Baruch Shem, after Shema. Zakein is always associated with Yaakov. Yaakov is the old man. We see in the Torah those few examples, the Rambam calls Yaakov the Zakein, Pasach HaZakein, the Zakein began. The appellation Zakein is initially used without even mentioning his name. It being understood, the Rambam doesn't even say Yaakov. He says, Pasach HaZakein V'Omar. The old man said, and we are supposed to know who is the old man in the Torah. It's always Yaakov. In Talmudic and Midrashic literature, Yaakov is called Yisrael Saba, Old Yisrael. And this term too is employed even in modern usage to designate Jews who observe the old tradition. In what manner did Yaakov distinguish himself that his name became the generic name for an entire people? And why is he in particular called the Zakin? So says the Rav, listen to this. Yaakov was the first patriarch to establish direct communication with his grandchildren. He was the first to make a historic pronouncement, thereby laying the foundation for the dialogue of the generations. He literally conquered time and space when he said to Yosef, Your two sons who were born to you in Egypt until I came to you, they are mine. They received portions in the later division of the Holy Land, as did the sons. Though a second generation removed and nurtured in an Egyptian environment, Yaakov equated them with his own sons who had been reared close to him in the Holy Land. Avram and Yitzchak transmitted their spiritual heritage to their sons, but not to their grandsons. The latter received it from their fathers, but there was no direct communication between Avram and Yaakov or between Yitzchak and Reuven and Shimon. The influence of the grandfathers on their grandchildren was indirect. Yaakov, Yaakov, however, related directly to his grandchildren. He did not need an intermediary or an interpreter. It was a direct dialogue. Yaakov the Zakein leapt over the gulf of generations and transmitted the great Mesorah of Avram directly to Ephraim and Menashe. Yaakov was the first to impart special blessings to his grandchildren, Hamalach HaGoalosi. He blessed them even before he assembled his own sons. He embraced them between his knees. He placed his hands on their heads, symbolically signifying that there was a direct transmission from Yaakov to Ephraim and Menashe. There was no generation gap in the house of Yaakov. The halachic ruling that B'nai Bonim Hareim Kevonim is derived from Yaakov's declaration about Ephraim and Menashe. How appropriate, therefore, that our people be called Yisrael, or Yaakov, for it was he who created the community which ensures Jewish continuity. What preceded him were patriarchal families, but Yaakov laid the foundation for a people. Though the covenant was made initially with Avram, it was not until Yaakov that the, that the secret of perpetuating the Mesorah was discovered. It's a beautiful idea, and the Rav elsewhere develops it even more at length. The notion of Yaakov as the paradigmatic grandfather. Right In Judaism, a grandparent is not just twice removed from a grandchild. A grandfather, a Zayda and a Babi, Saba and Safta, Oma and Opa, whatever you want to be called, but there is a, 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 a mandate, there's a mission. There's an obligation, right? You know, the, the old adage is that it's great to be a grandparent because you could give the children back, right? The grandchildren back. You play with the grandchildren, but you could give them back. But the truth is that the Rav is developing this notion that there is an awesome responsibility. The grandparent is not just retired from parenting. The grandparent has a different level of parenting responsibility to that grandchild. You know, it's very apropos, the Rav 
I think the Rav lived this. The Rav was famous for when his grandchildren would visit him in Boston, he would brush up on a language that would speak to them. You know, what he writes here, that he didn't want a generation gap. So his children and grandchildren describe he would read the sports pages of the newspaper before his grandchildren visited so that he could talk to them about the Red Sox. Like he cared about the Red Sox. But he wanted there not to be a generation gap. And if grandchildren see their grandparents as the other, as totally disassociated, as totally distant and unfamiliar, then when the grandparent wants to instill a lesson, it doesn't, it doesn't resonate. But if the grandchild sees the grandparent as making the effort to care about what the grandchildren care about, now the grandparent is positioned later to also play that, that sacred role to also instill continued values and ideals. And that's what Rav Soloveitchik says, that's what you see here. Yaakov, through this comment, Ephraim Umenasha Kiruvain Vishimon Yuli, is saying, I'm not just a grandparent because I get to give the kids back. I'm a grandparent, I have a role as a grandparent. A grandparent too has a role to transmit the Mesorah towards Jewish continuity, the development of Yaakov as the first grandfather. A very beautiful idea. Yes? Yeah. Oh, yes. Other commentaries explain that. Exactly. Ruvain had forfeited his position as Bechor. That's what Yaakov tells him when he gives him the bracha. You impetuous son, you can't be a leader. Which is something you learn, by the way, that to be a leader, you can't be impetuous. You've shown that quality, you're out. So who takes that role? Maybe it's Yosef, and then he gets the double portion, Pishnayim, and that's why both of his sons inherit. Yes. Right. So the right Zaken is an acronym Zekan Chachma that the older person has attained a certain level of wisdom. That's why they save Takum. That's why we show greater respect. Yaakov is called the Zaken, but the Rav is saying Yaakov is more than just called the Zaken because he happens to be an old man who knows Torah. A Zaken means this is the sacred role of the Jewish people. It's a role that should be embraced. When one becomes a grandparent, you know you, you can't say I can't believe I'm old enough to be a Zeda. You say Oh, I'm a Zeda. I have, a, I have a role. It's, it's a role to play. Right, what the Rav was referring to, this notion of Saba. Right? The Gemara often says, Hahu Saba Ikla, there was a Saba that came from Bavel. What's the Gemara referring to when he says Saba? An old man, because we're just telling us his age. You know, he, he was the first to board the plane. He was an old man. He was in the wheelchair section. What is the Gemara telling us? Hahu Saba, this old man came from Bavel, came from Eretz Yisrael. What the Rav is saying is, there is a... A designation, there's a status, there's an individual called a Saba. Right? We talk about this in the Musar school. You have the altar of Kelm, the altar of Navardak, the altar of, uh, of Slobodka. How do you say altar in Hebrew? In the opening page of the Sefer, of, of the Sefer, Madregas Adam, or the Svarim of the different altars, it doesn't say altar, which is the Yiddish. It says, Hasaba mi Slobodka, Hasaba mi Kelm. Why were they called Saba? They were old men. They weren't the grandparents of the members of their yeshiva. The, uh, the Saba of Slobodka is called a Saba because there is a role of Saba. It's different than the role of Ima and Abba, of mom and dad. It's a role of Babi and Zaidi, of Saba and Safta. It's a role that's worth talking about. What exactly is that role? I could tell you as a child, it should be a carefully 
articulated role because the grandparents have a role but they should leave the disciplining to the parents they should they should be they should be spectators to a certain degree when they're, even when they're seeing things unfold they should be spectators so that it's, it should be a carefully crafted role in coordination with their children vis-a-vis the grandchildren it should be a carefully crafted role but um, but, it, but it is a role it's not a role which should be neglected or a role which should be conceded or forfeited says the Rav based on this Pasuk based on Yaakov it's a very important role ok continuing your children if you have any after them shall be yours by their brother's name they'll be called in your inheritance Right in Tolid Od Lo Yud B'Minyan Rashi says in Tolid Od Lo Yud B'Minyan Bonai El B'Soch Shiftei Ephraim Menashe Yud Nechlalim. Right, how exactly it's going to work out? The inheritance. Pasuk Zayin. It's one of my favorite pesukim in the Torah. Vani Bevoi Mi Padan. I love the way that Yaakov says this. He describes Rachel Imenu Lahavdil like an old car. Vani Bevoi Mi Padan. And as for me, oh, when I came from Padan, Mesa Alai Rachel. Rachel up and went and died on me. Be'eretz Kenan baderech ba'ud kivras eretz lavo efrasa. She went and died on me in the land of Canaan on the way when there was still a stretch of land on the way to Ephras. Vek bereh sham baderech Ephras he beis lachem, and I buried her there on the road to Ephrat, which is Beit Lechem. Right? You love that formulation. Misa alai Rachel. She died on me. That's how you talk about a car. The car died on me. Right? The computer died on me. My cell phone died on me. My wife? Mesa Alai Rachel. Rachel died on me? What kind of language is this? What kind of way is this to describe? And why in the world is Yaakov talking about this now? What does this have to do with anything? What does it have to do with anything? So the Sfarno says, what does Mesa Alai Rachel mean? She up and went and died on me. So he quotes the Gemara in Sanhedrin, very accurate, a very true Gemara. Gemara in Sanhedrin Kufbe says, "Ain isha mesa ella labayla." Ain isha mesa ella labayla. That when a woman dies, the one who's hit hardest, and the one who's hit in a categorically different way than anyone else, is her husband. Ain isha mesa ella labayla. You see that a lot. A lot of times it's said that uh, a husband passes away. And a lot of times the widow is able to build a life for herself. And a lot of times the wife passes away and the husband is paralyzed. He doesn't know the first thing what to do with that. He, he doesn't know where to go, what to do, how to live. Often people are suggesting shidduchim while he's still sitting shiva for his wife because uh, he, can't, uh, he can't continue without her. Ain isha mesa ella labayla. A person can't, uh, 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 you can't compare the loss for the husband as opposed to for anyone else. And the Sforno was saying, that's what Yaakov was saying. Mesa alai Rachel. Yeah, Rachel's loss was devastating for the world. Rachel's loss was devastating for the world. But it was not devastating for anyone as much as it was for me. Alai. She died on me. She took a piece of me with her. They took a piece of me with her that I've never recovered from. Which is a remarkable thing for Yaakov to be saying now. It's many years later. He built a life without her. And yet, all these years later, it's a lie. Her death still took a piece of me with her, unlike what anyone else experienced with her, with her death. Why is he saying this now? 
Why is he saying this now? So the Mephoshim all here, every one of them, Rashi, the Ibn Ezra, the Rashbam, the Arachayim, they all say essentially the same answer. What is he worried about? What did he just ask Yosef to do? Do me a favor, Yosef. I know it won't be easy. I know it won't be easy. I know we're really far away. But promise me you'll bury me in the plot of our patriarchs. Promise me you'll put me in Marasa Machpela. What is he worried that Yosef is thinking? Sure, Dad. Just like you did for Mom, right? You left her in a roadside grave. You buried her on the side of the road where she died on you like your old car. Yaakov is worried that Yosef's going to look at him and say, I should fulfill the promise. I should be Matriach myself. I should take you all the way from Egypt to bury you when you, when you were just in Beis Lachem and you couldn't make your way to Hebron to bury mom, to bury Rachel. So Yaakov preempts it by saying, I want to tell you, when I was coming from Padan, your mother died. And there was a long stretch to Ephraim. And I buried her on the side of the road. And why? So look at the Ibn Ezra. Shemesa Rachel pit om. Rachel died suddenly, unexpectedly. I wasn't able to take her to bury her as I did Leah. I wasn't able to. But I don't want you to carry that, to hold that against me. The Rashbam says similarly. There was no opportunity. I didn't have the chance. I didn't have the opportunity. Why? Because she died suddenly. So I couldn't get it done. So here I am telling you, plan. This isn't sudden. I'm going to die. And I have the chance. You have the chance that I didn't have with your mother. To do planning. To do planning. You know, I wrote about this once. One of the greatest gifts that parents can give their children is to do their planning and to inform their children of their planning. Here are the graves. Here's the funeral home. Here's what I want. Here's how it should happen. Here's where everything is organized. Here's where everything is kept. This is who I don't want in a million years speaking at my funeral. And here's who I do want speaking at my funeral. This is uh, everything. To have it planned. Instead of children speculating, guessing, debating, arguing, there's also a tremendous cost difference. At need and pre-need, if you've ever looked into it, you know, for no reason other than the fact that funeral homes can exploit the urgency, that pre-need is thousands of dollars less money than at need. Than at need. So Yaakov is telling Yosef, when your mother died, it was an at-need moment. I, I didn't have a choice. I couldn't arrange a funeral. I couldn't bring her to Marasa Machpelah. I'm giving you the gift of pre-need. I'm telling you that I'm planning now and I'm telling you exactly what I want. And here's how I want it to happen. You know, it's somewhat easier if you're observant, your children are observant, but many situations are not like that. So you need to communicate. I want a tahara. I want a shomer. I want exactly what you want. That's one of the greatest gifts one can give. And that's what Yaakov is telling Yosef. We're doing our pre-need right now. And I, warning, I'm preempting. You might say, well, you didn't do that for mom. So I'm telling you, I didn't get a chance. She died suddenly. But I learned from that. And we're doing the pre-need now. So this is what I want to happen. The Rechaim talks about this. Everybody talks about this as well. Um, but it's more than just this. Yeah. 
Rashi tells us it's more than this. Look at Rashi. Vek Barosham. V'lo alachtila afil lebeis lachem lachnisa laaretz. Your mother, I couldn't have even brought her into Beis Lechem. And I know that all these years, Yosef, my son, you have a grievance against me. But Yaakov is telling him, it's not in the text, but this is our tradition. Yaakov is telling him, Yosef, I'm going to die. And I know all these years you've had this grievance. Why didn't I bury your mother in Beit Lechem? So I want you to know, it wasn't on my own. It was because God told me to. And God, why did God want her buried there? So she would be helpful for children. So the Jewish people would have beautiful songs to sing for years. When it was Radan, the Babylonian general would exile the Jewish people. And he would exile them to Babylonia, passing by the road where Kever Rachel is. Yatzas Rachel Akivra Ubocha Rachel goes on her grave and cries Umivakeshes Aleha Rachamim Shenemar Kol Berama Nishma As the Pasuk in Yirmiyahu says Kol Berama Nishma V'Hakadosh Baruch Hu Meshivam Yesh Zchar Lepula Seich Nuhum Hashem V'Shavu Banim Ligvulam That when God will ignore the pleas of all the other matriarchs and patriarchs it is only Racheli Menu who when she will stand and cry as they pass her by, that God will make the promise, Vishavu Banim Ligvulam, that they will once return. If we have a modern state of Israel, if we are seeing the ingathering of the exiles, if we are returning to Israel today, it's only because Rachel was buried there and earned that promise from God. It's in her merit that we are taking that same road, Derech Avot, back to Eretz Yisrael today. So Yaakov is telling Yosef, I know you've carried this grievance, but I'm dying. And I want you to know, either at need, pre-need, or that this is what God instructed me, because this is what God wanted, that Rachel's soul would intervene for the Jewish people, and it's only in her merit that we have returned to Israel today. Have a fantastic week.